I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 35 of Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast. This one is entitled Review and Discussion Counterinsurgency Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War by Douglas Porch. Before we get started on that review and discussion, a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to thank all of my listeners and correspondents who have been talking to me via email and discussing things with me. I also have a new Substack for Chasing Ghosts. So if you go to Substack, put in Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare podcast, Bill Bupert, I have all my episodes there linked. One of the reasons I wanted to do that was to have a comment section for each of the episodes. So I went through there and laboriously uploaded every episode along with book references, maybe PDF references and and other things to expand on the subjects that I've covered in each of those respective episodes. You can email me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. And I really enjoyed doing those excursions episodes. One was on salvo competition, and the follow-on was on the carrier, and why I think the carrier, much like the man tank, has seen its day and is going the way of the crossbow and the chariot as far as a military innovation that has seen its time and is now past its use. So my journey over to being a modest practitioner and scholar of irregular warfare and all of the things that umbrella term rubric recommends to it or discusses and extrapolates into the future, I have to say that there have been authors and folks who have really influenced my way of thinking. Among the largest influences on me when it comes to the, I wouldn't say it's a reversal, but a refinement of my skepticism of the Irregular Warfare Project in the Western world was one Douglas Porch, who wrote an extraordinary book in 2013 entitled Counterinsurgency, Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War. Now, I like the book so much that I took it to Staples, spiral bound it like I do with my um, shooting and marksmanship books. And it makes it easier to use it for research and such. So there are books that I have in my rather massive library, which I'm sitting in as we speak, that uh, I spiral bound in order to make them easier to use. And of course, books I take to the range, I will spiral bound those to make those easier to put on the range table or on the ground where I am. If you wish to do that to make some of your books more useful, if you go to a local uh, office depot or Staples, they can always do this for a very modest amount of money, and you will find it comes in extraordinarily handy. Now, this wasn't my first introduction to Douglas Porch because he's quite the prolific writer, and apparently he is not only a francophone, but also a very accomplished historian and examining archives that are both English language and French language. The books that I've read by him, among which he has a lot, is The French Secret Service, The French Foreign Legion, A Complete History. 
He did the conquest of Morocco, the path to victory in the Mediterranean, the conquest of the Sahara, and and other books. Just a, a, a tremendous grasp of not only the historiographical craft, the footnote craft of finding the right citations for the right subjects and arriving at the right answers, which always isn't done by most historians past and present. I really appreciate that about him. So who is Douglas Porch? Douglas Porch earned a PhD from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge University. He's a distinguished professor emeritus and former chair of the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. I will be going out there this summer. I look forward to that. He is presently an academic visitor at St. Anthony's Oxford and a visiting fellow at Oxford's Changing Character of War program. Now, I went over some of his books already. Just to give you an idea, He's, uh, I think his first book was published, The Portuguese Armed Forces and the Revolution, 1977. And then he started to publish a number of books after that. One thing that did surprise me is when I discovered that Counterinsurgency, the present book that we're examining for this episode, has been placed on the Army Chief of Staff's reading list for all officers. Now, I am shocked at that because I don't always see these reading lists. I'm something of a a military reading list connoisseur. I like to use that as a gauge and a a pulse taking of what the current officialdom among flag officers is thinking. And also the civilians and the SES equivalents, when they come out with these reading lists for young officers, middle grade officers, senior field, field grade officers, and others, I'm always interested in seeing, is there a trend line there as far as what they're paying attention to, what they're trying to transmit, and what they're trying to incorporate into the not only historical but epistemological knowledge base of the officer corps, and by extension, those NCOs and even enlisted men who would be interested in partaking of that reading list, because what I find, for instance, is that something I used to teach my young officers was that we're in a profession as Army folks, military folks, in which we have this 2,000, almost 2,500-year bloodless practicum of this huge corpus of literature and knowledge that one can partake in, everything from Sun Tzu and his grandson Sun Pin's writing on war from the Chinese era over 2,000 years ago, to everything in between, to everything that we've seen published exponentially in the 20th century and the 21st century on military history, warfare, strategic thinking, and, and all of those things. All of this data, all of this knowledge is available to anybody who wishes to partake. It's simply you purchase it for your Kindle, you purchase the book. What I find, for instance, is that I'll get a Kindle book, and the book is so good, and this happened with Porch's book, Counterinsurgency, that I had to order a copy so that I could examine his footnotes. Because to me, in historical documentation and even of contemporary affairs, looking at historical antecedents echoing in the past, when you have the footnotes, you can examine those footnotes, and those can take you down the rabbit holes to examine in a more full and comprehensive fashion exactly what the author was getting at, and what the single most accurate picture is of what one can come to a conclusion about when it comes to those. You will find, though, despite it being on this Army reading list recommended by the chief of staff, that when you look at reviews in 
you look at the use specs in the reviewing spectrum when it comes to this book, there has been a fair amount of hostility towards his conclusions because his conclusions are, as I have said again and again throughout the episode since I started this podcast, I am a Cointra. I was inspired by the likes of John Gentile, Douglas Porch, Colonel Douglas McGregor, and, uh, and a host of other very worthy thinkers and, and folks who have really influenced how I view all of this. There is a hostility because the Coindonista realm, which is the vast proportion and vast majority of those who inhabit the halls of power, who are in the flag ranks, who lord over the military educational and professional system within the war colleges and the other college functions throughout all of the services, they're rather hostile to this because Porch has really taken the rug out from underneath their main motivation and what they purport to do, which is to employ irregular warfare in all aspects of it, most pointedly in counterinsurgency, and achieve these miraculous things that, well, the ambition is there, but we can see historically and contemporaneously those things have not come to pass and usually backfire in a very large way because Newton's third law, as we have observed in the past, is a very cold stone killer when it comes to ambition of even the most sophisticated and expedities in conducting this kind of warfare. Porch's thesis is that throughout the last two centuries, counterinsurgency, and I would say in a larger extent irregular warfare by the West, has demonstrated a relatively consistent set of flawed and unethical views and practices that are reflected in monarch, modern counterinsurgency to the detriment of U.S. military and Western nations in achieving the efficacy in the end state that they wish to do in influencing through military means these other countries or regions. Porch, for instance, claims that Petraeus's document Field Manual 3-24, the counterinsurgency manual that came out in 2007, quote, offers no strategy for success and discounts the fact that insurgencies are political phenomenon, end of quote. So, for those listeners, if you're new to this this uh, podcast, I recommend that you go back and listen to episodes two and four if you get a chance, and you'll know why I am suggesting the thesis in a thumbnail sketch that I'm about has some relevance here. Now, one of my conceits, and this is a conceit that Porch does not have, but Porch infers this, but he doesn't say it out loud, and I don't know if I'm the only one who says this out loud, but here is my thesis. All, or shall we say most, counterinsurgencies are anti-fragile, and all, or shall we say most, counterinsurgencies are, by their very nature, fragile. They're fragile for a variety of reasons, among which is that you have these military invasion forces, maybe they're attached or harnessed to socio-political means by the external invaders, in this case occupying a country, If we look at Afghanistan or we look at Iraq or we look at Libya or we look at Syria or we look at Yemen or we look at the Horn of Africa, now in the 21st century, in this last almost quarter century now, we have invested, in this case we being the United States and the Western nations, have gone into a number of these nations and conducted counterinsurgency and have simply not won. If not stalemates, they've been defeated. 
And what happens again and again is that these fragile coalitions find themselves in violent collision with tribal factions, clan factions, group factions, political factions that are indigenous to the country that has been invaded and occupied by the counterinsurgents and find themselves over time losing in a very large way, finding stalemates in other places or portions of said conflict, not having the proper strategic design to try to best these indigenous insurgencies, and for the most part, accepting some very rare occasions, all of these counterinsurgencies launched by the West in the 21st century have met with failure. I would suggest to everybody listening that if we simply examine back to 1945, you find this almost seamless tapestry of defeats by the West, namely the United States, in prosecuting large and small conflicts and prosecuting conventional conflicts, unconventional conflicts. And some may say, again, well, the United States and the UN coalition forces and NATO coalition forces won in 1991 in the brief war in the Persian Gulf. But if that were the case, then why would the United States and its allies have to return to the Persian Gulf, in this case specifically Iraq in 2003, to complete the mission that apparently they had fulfilled in 1991? It doesn't fit the logic or the scale of the problem. I think one of the reasons why you find a number of reviews that are hypercritical of Douglas Porch's thesis is that counterinsurgency, irregular warfare, and such business in the West. There's a lot of money involved in this. And what we've discovered, for instance, and I've examined this in excursions recently, is that when it comes to conventional conflicts and more toe-to-toe conflicts, the kinds that have populated popular histories about the world for the past 2,000 years. Big money in this. If we examine what's been happening in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and such, which is palpably in the 21st century, peer conflict, in this case Russia, against a near-peer contestant, in this case Ukraine, where for the most part in the 21st century, we have not seen any of that. And I certainly wouldn't call, even if we step back through the era, and we go before 1991, between 19, probably 53 in Korea, and then the tragic interregnum in Vietnam, when we examine, for instance, what has occurred against other nations, one doesn't see this kind of near-peer versus peer conflict that we're able to have front row seats to right now with the Ukraine and Russia. I find it a bit disturbing as a side note that when I look at this conflict, and I've been an observer of human conflict all of my adult life, that I can't get the single most accurate picture from Russia and the Ukraine, which is one reason why I don't talk about it a lot on this podcast during any of my episodes is because I have never been so suspect of the data on either side, even though I do intend on doing a future episode on the Russian strike reconnaissance complex and the fact that I think the Russians have broken the code on how to do what Nathan Bedford Forrest would call getting there with the fastest, with the mostest, and being being able to assign via an array of sensors and effectors and a C4I, a, a command and control communications computer 
and intelligence infrastructure that actually speaks in a real-time or near-real-time fashion to the delivery of metal on target or the neutralization and destruction of targets on a very dynamic battlefield. So I will be examining that in the future, not this episode, but I just wanted to bring that up because of our observations about near-peer versus peer conflicts. So back to Porch, I find that a lot of the negativity that he finds himself surrounded by with the publication of this book is because he's poking the bear. Cases this massive Koindanista industrial complex set within the military complex that is always looking for new to spend money on this particular campaign analysis and idea that instantiates itself, again, not only through the 21st century, but throughout all the history of war. I actually think that Porch's thesis is dead simple. What he's basically saying is that in this case, counterinsurgency as a subset under that umbrella rubric of irregular warfare where we take this narrow slice of counterinsurgency and insurgency, he examines he examines it not only historically but logically, and he goes back about 200 years. He can go a lot further than that if he wished, but he wanted to confine himself to about 200 years. And in this case, since he's a Francophone, he has a very able expertise when it comes to examining French efforts in Africa and, and such. His bottom line appears to be that whatever you want to call counterinsurgency, it is more than the latest blush and instantiation of neo-colonial warfare for all of the countries over 200 years that have wrested control of indigenous nations outside of continental Europe for the most part and made those colonial holdings. And once those colonial holdings were in the hazard, which was probably in abeyance during the 19th century, but really started to exacerbate itself after the conclusion of World War I. And then, of course, we have the interregnum and then World War II. And after World War II, all of these countries, France, Belgium, the UK, and all the rest of them that had colonies planet-wide would see the off. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, when it comes to the, for instance, in 1940, they're astride this very large empire that has its problems, but nonetheless astride a, an empire that famously the sun never sets upon. By 1947, 1948, for the most part, especially with the departure of the Indian Raj, they own little rocks around the planet, whether it be Pitcairn Island or maybe a couple islands in the Caribbean and the Falklands. And, of course, we saw a near-peer and peer conflict that was a sparkle in 1982 when it came to the Falklands and what happened and what the Argentinians referred to as the Battle of the Malvinas, which they lost, and they were able to keep their Falklands Commonwealth rock expense. I will be quoting from some of Porch's work, but what I really enjoy is that not only does he give these historical analogs, and not only do I think he makes an able, capable, and factually substantial case and why being a cointra is the logical and moral position to be when it comes to irregular warfare and especially in insurgency and counterinsurgency, but he covers a lot. He covers the road from Sedan, France, the paroxysms of imperial might in the shadow of the Great War, World War I, from Tipperary to Tel Aviv, British counterinsurgency in the World War II era. Speaking of which, in talks that I've had at professional organizations and occasionally online and in meetings, I have to say that I'm reluctant to Anglophile, and I find that the British win all of their military victories in spite of their best efforts, especially in the last 
200 years, especially in the 20th century and the 21st century. And this mythos, this terrific public relations campaign that the British have conducted in which they find themselves, or at least they say to the world that they are the world's premier experts in counter-revolutionary warfare and counter-insurgency and that they're amazing exploits in Malaya, Aden, Oman, and all the other places that they've conducted their storied and tragicomic counterinsurgency efforts, they are for naught. And when you take a look at them closely and you look at what the end state is and what the unintended consequences and second and third order effects are of their efforts, you find that it isn't a, a success story. It's a trail of tears. And I find that when I have the privilege of having British officers mostly in the audience at these talks that I've conducted, I do enjoy and have some schadenfreude in taking a chainsaw to their historical interpretations, which I find vastly wanting. It is my contention that in the 20th century and the 21st century, there are no experts in the West in how to successfully conduct counterinsurgency. There are plenty of experts in the West who suppose that they know how to start one and, and um, make one happen and bring everything into theater and conduct the military campaigns and the political campaigns and everything else. But when we look at this in impartial and sober observation, how many have been won? Certainly not Afghanistan. Certainly not, certainly not Iraq. Certainly not Syria. Certainly not the Horn of Africa. As I've mentioned before, there's a conflict ban before October 7th 2023 that extended all the way from the westernmost reaches of Mali, and one can make the case the western coast of Africa, all the way to the frontier reaches of the India-Pakistan border. And when you look at that combat, that, that, that conflict ban from east to west, from west to east, from left to right, right to left, Egypt before October 7th was at a low ebb as far as conflict within the country after October 7th and the assault and kerfuffle between Israel and Gaza occurred. All of a sudden, Egypt finds itself in the throes of nascent Islamic revolution or Islamic sectionalism going on in the country. So we have this band of conflict fire from the western coast of Africa all the way to India, Pakistan, and I don't see it being settled down in any fashion soon enough. In my episode, when I talked about the French involvement in Algeria and the disaster that that was for the French Empire, which would even topple a French government in metropolitan France, I had quoted from a chapter that Porch did on that very topic. And, quote, from 1953, as director of Paris's CEAA, which is the Center for the Study of Africans and Asiatics, he led a select group of officers in the study of Mao, Liddell Hart, and T. E. Lawrence with the goal of transforming the mentality of the political military apparatus to conduct a counterinsurgency struggle for the French Empire. And that was Colonel Charles Lacharoy, who thought that his vision of how to do it would be the correct way for them to keep Algeria within the, the French sphere of political influence. So I th when it comes to the scholarly mastery of French martial affairs in the English language, Porch is probably among the more capable and competent observers of how the French do their business and how they conduct 
counterinsurgency, how they conduct irregular warfare. And he finds, along with my observations of the British conduct of counterinsurgency and irregular warfare, that when you strip it away from all of the descriptors that we employ today and all of the language and lexicon that talks about the liberation, the not occupation of a country, but we're going there to assist allies. We're going there to assist a government to establish control from those insurgents within their country proper or even a region, as I've discussed before, when it comes to uncorking these smaller brush fire wars into larger wars by conducting large wars in the first place and what that does through the unintended consequences. As I mentioned before, Porch doesn't explicitly recognize these two connections that I have drawn and, and, and been inspired by his work to come to the conclusion about, which is the fragility and anti-fragility of counterinsurgency and insurgency respectively, and the relationships and infighting that is the natural witch's brew of, of America and NATO and European bureaucracies in conflict and all of these huge, large, lumbering, sclerotic organizations connected to the defense industry, the Defense Department, the Pentagon, the NATO, the EU, Brussels, D.C., all of these, these hybrid cocktails of playing at who owns what turf, who's going to get the amount of money. And this turns into a huge problem set in prosecuting these conflicts in a unified fashion that actually achieves the operational and strategic end state that they set out to do when they invade these countries or regions in the first place. And Porch also observes, ironically enough, that the military may have too much influence over policy. Where in this case, when it comes to irregular warfare, as Clausewitz would tell us, that war is the extension of politics by other means, the military must be the junior partner. And even the British reluctantly admit this, especially when it comes to the Malayan experience, that that is in order to guide an offensive and an operational and a strategic framework that actually leads to the creation of a nation state or maybe even a regional enterprise that is neutral or beneficial to the original invader. I love this quote from Porch. Quote, Robert Kaplan, yet another reactionary populist suffering delusions of Lorenzian romanticism, praises security assistance promoted by a new generation of soft imperial grunts armed with the martial evangelicalism of the South who venture into engine country to teach coin skills to indigenous militaries as a force multiplier. Kaplan fails to note that these men, trained by the United States, often have their own political, economic, or sectarian agendas and may simply oppress their own people or their neighbors. End of quote. Another thing that one can infer from this observation is that to collaborate with occupation and evading forces in a country should be held suspect in the first and the foremost because of the very fact that they are becoming collaborators, again, with the invaders of their countries. Michael Hastings, the historian, talked about this in one of his books, where he said, quote, the military culture was by nature authoritarian, and it was there they were most comfortable, even if 
As Special Force, they pushed against its rigidness. They still felt more at home among their brothers on the inside than on the outside. In fact, with the element of separateness, the insulated feeling of superiority was even greater. They could do things other men couldn't do and had done them, good or bad. If it was a mission, then it was permissible. If it was for us against them, it was inherently right. If it took place in the arena, it was sublime. What wasn't permissible was breaking trust and what they viewed as trust straying outside the pack. The decade of war had hardened these feelings, creating an almost insurmountable boundary between them and the rest of society. The media just didn't play up their romantic image of warriors. The men held dearly to the romantic image themselves. They were willing to protect one another, to die for one another. That was the value that they cherished. And if you weren't part of the team, your motives were immediately suspect, impure, like the motives of politicians or diplomats. The base reasons that drove others, money and power, were not what drove them, or so they told themselves. They yearned for a pure relationship. It was kind of love that could only be found in a world they saw reflected in themselves. End of quote. That was Hastings' book, The Operators, The Wild and Terrifying Inside Story of America's War in Afghanistan. Highly recommended if you get a chance to read that. Like Jean Lotteguy's The Centurions, small war soldiers can become a rootless, disaffected, self-glorifying group estranged from a homeland that they regard as decadent and ungrateful and from a military organization they see as bureaucratic and unresponsive. And of course, I covered this in a previous episode, Paris and Paris, where I talked about the attempted military overthrow of the government of metropolitan France in 1962 by disaffected paratroopers who had thought that they had been betrayed in the loss of Algeria that had been conducted there for a dozen years. There are so many parts and pieces when one looks at the historical record of what's happened in irregular warfare, and especially in counterinsurgency and insurgency. And I have this massive library of books I'm looking to my left here at, and I have two bookshelves that are filled with histories and documentarian evidence of the successes, which are few, and the failures, which are many, in the conduct of this peculiar type of warfare that Porch describes as not counterinsurgency, but neo-colonial warfare 2.0. For the most part, I happen to agree with him in his, in his assessment. And when you look at the efficacy, the end state, the outcomes of all of these conflicts, they tend to leave that trail of tears that I described earlier. They tend to spend, in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives, maybe not taken, but shattered in myriad ways. Everything from having been proximate to IED explosions and TBIs and the number of veterans that we have now, who suffer a number of perceived or real ailments as a result of having participated in these conflicts, or something that I, I'm not saying that I'm fond of this, but I think it's a trenchant ob observation on what we have. There's an invisible injury that occurs from the conduct of these wars. And again, this is something that Porch infers, but doesn't really tease out in a palpable fashion. And that would be the moral injury of these wars in participating in things that I know I have personally, that one grows to regret or even feel shame for having either been a part of in the larger picture or in the smaller picture in a, in a particular incident. 
I think that of all the cointures out there, certainly not me, John Gentile has taken a stab at it. Douglas McGregor has taken a stab at it. My friend General Daniel Bolger has more than taken a stab at it. But I don't think that any of these cointres have done it in the comprehensive and really take-no-prisoners approach that Porch has employed. And as I mentioned earlier in this episode, he has a fair number of detractors, and I'm not impugning all of the motives of these detractors, but I would say that a lot of them, maybe they have invested so much time and treasure and parts of their lives in the Coindonista enterprise that they find the need to defend it, no matter what the evidence receipts and footnotes show, that it may not be the meritorious enterprise they thought it was. Porch, he did the homework. He shows us in a very comprehensive fashion and with a, what I think is a very disciplined historiography, why it is so wrong and inefficacious. I want to quote from Porch in his conclusion in the book. Quote, Perhaps the most convincing refutation of the Coindonista claims, however, comes from within the military, where some officers argue that coin doctrines are anchored in a mythologized history and selective memory fail to work at an acceptable price, and erode the core skills of conventional warriors. Even in Petraeus' Afghanistan, population-centric strategies gave way to what two authors termed urban-centric strategies. In essence, the argument is that even Petraeus realized that Afghanistan was a nut too hard for coin to crack, too big, too backward, too fanaticized, with uncertain safe havens on the border. Therefore, the coalition in Afghanistan has basically focused a main towns and ring road that circles the country. There are at least two problems with this urban-centric approach, beginning with the fact that the insurgency is concentrated in the countryside, where almost 80% of the population lives not in the cities. When U.S. forces or allied forces do venture into the countryside, they build their bases outside the villages, sometimes to disadvantageous positions, far from air support, so that the village may become a staging area for attacks that become quite costly. A second problem is that this strategy was tried before by the Soviets in the 1980s and led only to defeat, end of quote. Look, Afghanistan is a figment of the Western imagination. 99% of everybody who lives outside of the capital city, a Western construct, of Kabul, don't recognize the authority of Kabul in dictating how their clans, their bloodlines, their families, the conduct of their relations and their businesses are done. They ignore them, and they ignore them in an armed fashion on occasion, which has led to a number of indigenous uprisings within the country, which has led to a number of invasions, to include the British, to include twice, to include the Russians. We saw what happened in 1989 in Afghanistan, where they gave up the ghost and left. And then, of course, we see in the fall of 2021 with the Kabul airlift and the Keystone Cop-style U.S., evacuation and retreat from Afghanistan proper, which was done that people are still shaking their heads at and wondering what the hell happened. Well, my listeners know what happened. From 2001 until that departure in 2021, 20 years, you have new generals every year coming in, four-star generals astride the country of Afghanistan, putting their hands on their hips and saying, I've got this when they've got jack shit. 
I highly recommend the Afghanistan Papers by Craig Whitlock if you want to see the receipts and the footnotes for why the DOD was saying one thing to the public and among themselves when they were at the Pentagon or their secure chat rooms or maybe in the officers club where they were probably much more truthful and frank fashion about what a military disaster it was, which of course one would have to find once the papers and the documentation is wrenched from the government because they would never tell you themselves. So I've got an additional quote from Porch's book, which I think is very trenchant. Quote, one result is that neo-containment of terrorist groups and the political entities that host them, not COIN, has become the preferred approach to places where intervention is required. This reverses a trend set in World War II in Vietnam that marries popular consolidation with special operations forces. Now COIN appears to have been jettisoned as slow and ineffective, leaving SOF as a standalone. It appears that we are back to Palestine in the late 1930s when Lord Trenchard's bombers combined with Ord Wingate's special night squads as a formula to subdue the Arab revolt. A combination of coalition air campaigns like the ones that destabilized Muammar Gaddafi's regime in Libya, predator drones whose effects are clean, proportioned, and morally defensible, according to some, and SOF is less costly and casualty-heavy than our extended occupations and avoids traumatic drawdowns. The inevitable collateral damage produces tremendous levels of local resent resentment, but there is little indigenous peoples can do about bombs directed at them from unseen predators commanded from control stations in California or Las Vegas. SOF and drones also offer more psychological appeal because they restore heroism, legitimacy, righteousness, manliness, and a sense of technological finality to the battlefield, attributes that avoid the expensive quagmire of Basevich's armed social work. For coin, as symbolized by FM 3 24, the counterinsurgency manual, and the ephemeral tactical triumphs of the Petraeus guys, and join a succession of failed organizational concepts that include the Army of Excellence, the Airland Battle, through the RMA, Revolutions in Military Affairs, and now to soft led petty war with conventional units in support. We're all chindits now. Not only does a special operations tail wag the conventional army dog in the model, it runs the risk of failing catastrophically in the face of a serious challenge, much as the French army collapsed in 1870. The idea that the latest reinvention of Giulio Duhay fly machines and Ordwin Gates supermen, as seen in the commando operation that killed Osama bin Laden in the spring of 2011, can repair the imperfections of the international system, accomplish national goals with minimal effort, avoid the Vietnam syndrome, and restore decision to wars attractive to populations and policymakers, not the least because it offers a prospect of war on the cheap. This combination is pursued despite the fact that the U.S. military's May 2012 Decade of War After Action Report on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan complained that general purpose forces as the battle space owners were left managing the second-order effects of soft targeting operations, which caused a significant disruption of their battle space in the aftermath of those operations. Whatever their tactical benefits or moral justifications, soft and drone attacks have served to spread anti-America sentiment and roiled the strategic relationship with Pakistan, and now it seems with Yemen as well. This sort of vicarious video game decapitation derby manhunt promises to avoid coins in this. In the end, however, it is just a makeover of Liddell Hart's victory without battles, 
that is no more likely to provide a formula for security than have deceptive measures of progress that accompany and sustain the illusory promise of coin success. End of quote. Thank you, Douglas Porch, for that sober and, uh, to me, vital decapitation of the whole notion of counterinsurgency in the West. He mentions in that quote one Andrew Basevich. I also count him among the Cointras and recommend his books. I think that Colonel Basevich, who is now a college professor, may have lost a son in Afghanistan. My regrets for that. He does a great job in that quote talking about not only the hubris, but in my mind, the intellectual bankruptcy of the entire coin enterprise in the West that demands a complete reevaluation, a complete reflection, and maybe even a stand down of sorts where we freeze in place all soft efforts planet wide and start to take into account okay, here's what we've been doing for the last decade, two decades. I would say arguably the last 100 years. What's good? What's bad? What do we need to get rid of? And what does Chesterton's Fence tell us? My dear listeners ask, for those who don't know, what is Chesterton's Fence? It is a simple rule of thumb that suggests that you should never destroy a fence, change a rule, or do away with a tradition until you understand why it's there in the first place. To me... It is a violation of Chesterton's fence for so long in every coin and irregular warfare enterprise that has led to inevitable failure by the U.S. and the West because they don't step back and ask themselves the necessary questions on, well, why was it there in the first place? What are we changing? And by the way, what are we attempting to change absent the cultural IQ or the geopolitical and georeference knowledge of the place that we're about to invade, what caused this to happen in the first place? Because Chesterton's fence in the it is a lesson in second and third order effect thinking, and we should do more of that along with more critical thinking. As I mentioned earlier, Porch's book on counterinsurgency had a terrific impact on my thinking and really started to steer me to other lines of inquiry and other conclusions and set up my sets of questions in more logical fashion. Because we always have to ask the right questions. I think it was Einstein, and I'm paraphrasing his quote, if you frame the right question, even if you don't arrive at the answer, at least the inquiry is going in the right direction. I don't think that's occurring. I don't think it has occurred, and I don't think it's going to occur because of the way the whole of government and the U.S. government and the Pentagon and the Western military enterprise works. I think that they are going to collide from one Keystone Cops martial misadventure to the next. Because as I have said, and I think it bears repeating, there is a reason the United States, and one can say for the most part NATO allies, have not won a military victory since 1945. Now, if I've inspired you to purchase Douglas Porch's book or borrow it from the library on counterinsurgency, you will be better for it. As a matter of fact, you will be better for reading so many of his books. It was his book on the French Foreign Legion 
that led me to start reading about what the French conflagrations in both Algeria and Indochina were, but specifically in Indochina, which led me to Windrow and Ted Morgan's book on Dien Bien Phu in 1953, where the French were defeated in detail by the Vietnamese in a fashion that really woke up observers in the Western world to where they could go awry in fighting what I would call near peer minus foe, in this case, the nascent Vietnamese army in the 1950s, and what could happen as a result of that. And of, of course, I find myself going down these rabbit holes. So he leads me to a study of the French Foreign Legion, which leads me to a study of the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in those two books, which leads me to Bernard Fall, the author of Hell in a Very Small Place, which was about Dien Bien Phu. And the new book that I'm going to be reviewing in the near future, once I complete it, Number One Realist by Nathaniel Moore, which is a biography of Bernard Fall. And I think that Bernard Fall, who I think died in 67, if I recall, would have been a peer, a confrere, and would have been nodding his head north and south if he had either spoke to Douglas Porch as a colleague or read his book. He would say, here's Douglas Porch writing this in 2013, and of course I mentioned that Fall died in 1967 tragically in Vietnam. He would have agreed with his assessments, and I think that Bernard Fall once I finish that book, is going to provide for an interesting review and discussion in a future episode on this podcast. I wanted to thank my listeners for taking part in these discussions and conversations that we're having. If you wish to converse with me in a civil and gentlemanly fashion, I would hope I am at cgpodcast at pm.me, cgpodcast at pm.me. If you wish to email me, and I have started a substack, which is called Chasing Ghost in Irregular Warfare podcast in the substack. And you will find the link to that in the show notes for this. And I have expanded show notes, which is one of the reasons why I opened the substack. Thanks again for listening. This is Bill. And I will chat with you again in a fortnight. Out. <laughs>